You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. For someone who was raised in the shadow of a man who's recognized as Ireland's greatest amateur golfer of all time, and who was the youngest child in a family of six kids, Marty Carr seems to have done pretty well for himself over the past 30 years. Marty's founder and CEO of Carr Golf, which is spelled C-A-R-R, if there's anyone listening who's unaware of the Carr family golfing dynasty, which I was back in 1980 when I passed on an opportunity to meet Marty's father, the legendary golfer J.B. Carr. That stands as number four on my list of the top 10 stupid things I've done in my life. Since 1989, Marty Carr has overseen the growth and success of Dublin-based Carr Golf, which started out and remains as one of the world's most respected operators of customized golf tours in Ireland, Scotland, England, and elsewhere. In fact, Carr Golf has received Golf Digest Editor's Choice Award four years running for Best Tour Operator from 2016 to 2019. Under Marty's direction and with help from his brother Roddy, Carr Golf has expanded beyond travel into two other business lines that leverage the company's expertise in golf. Those include a golf course maintenance company and a business that provides course management and marketing services. Car Golf currently employs more than 80 people on a full-time basis and a team twice that size for various projects. Car Golf has been involved in a number of renowned golf projects, including Old Head of Kinsale, Drummond Castle, Mount Juliet, Carton House, and Barbados Golf Club. I'd like to suggest that the key to Car Golf's growth and success can be found in the company's six core values, which are displayed prominently on its website. Here are the first two of those core values. We offer service and respect to staff and customers. And it's interesting, I think, that staff is not only included, but it's listed before customers. And the second is we understand the value of reputation, integrity, and trust. It's refreshing to see a company that stands for something more than making money, And Marty Carr, it's an honor to have you here today on the podcast. Welcome to Golf Yeah. Thank you very much, uh, Gordon, for that uh, introduction. Yeah, delighted to be on and uh, in this nice, nice fall day here in Dublin. Okay. I hope it's not snowing there. It's not snowing in New Jersey either, so. No, no, no. There's (laughs) a threat of it, but uh, we don't get it very often over here. (laughs) Okay. So listen, I I have a a book in my hands called J.B. Carr, The Life and Times of Ireland's Greatest Amateur Golfer. So I'd like to start out by how much of an impact did that have on you growing up? Were you always aware of the Carr family celebrity in Ireland? Um, I, I, I guess I was. I think I think for me, uh, being the youngest of, of six in the family, growing up in a very robust household of a Suncroft, which was perched on the second green in Sutton overlooking the golf course and uh, and the sea. But the only thing about it was I was born in 1963 and my father won his last amateur in 1960. Uh, so therefore, I had missed... You know uh, his his major his major run in this in in, in the fifties uh, the three amateurs that he won, so I came along at the tail end of his career, and by the time I was kind of uh, you know late 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 single digits or early teens, uh, his career was all but over. So a lot of it passed me by, but I was certainly aware of the fact that uh, 
the likes of John Jacobs and Jack Nicholas and, and, and a number of, you know, golf celebrities were coming and going and staying in our house during, during various events. So while it did pass me by, I was aware that uh, uh, it was a bit different. Okay. There's a picture in that book of the family, and you're at the tail end on the right. And it looks like there's quite a spread between you and your older brother. What What was the year, the age difference? Uh, there's about 15 years between me, my oldest brother, Jody. Uh, Jody would be uh, 70 uh, this year, and uh, I am 56. So it's 14, 15 years in the difference. But as you know, in those days, uh, you know, all the grief went downhill and I was at the bottom. So I got most of it. So that's why I was a bit of a rebel, you know? Okay. Yeah. But usually it's the other way around, right? The youngest gets off easy. Yeah. Now, nowadays that's the case. Yeah. But in those days it was a bit different. Uh, I read somewhere and I'm not sure if it was in this book uh, that your father was adopted as an infant and raised by his aunt. And I'm just wondering if you don't want to talk about that, about that subject, it's fine. But yeah, you know, how much of an impact you think that had on him and, you know, did your father, or your family ever know his birth mother? Was that something that was discussed? You know, it was. It was. It was quite. It, it certainly had an impact on him uh, because he never spoke of it and never acknowledged the fact that he was adopted. In those days, it was his mother had given uh, him to his sister and her husband, who just returned from India to become steward and stewardess in Port Marnock Golf Club. So he was never told about it. It was never discussed. So I think it was a bit of a stigma for him because in those days. Like he was playing amateur golf for Ireland and on his passport was Joseph Waters while he was known by everybody as Joseph Carr. So he was always protective of that identity. And in those days, there was shame attached. So I think it certainly drove him, drove him along uh, in, in a very big way. I know that in the book, he talks about the fact that the captains normally uh, collected up all the passports for the teammates. And it was a main, major point of stress for him. Uh, we never knew. The only time I ever met his sister was at his funeral in a wheelchair outside. So he, he refused to acknowledge his adopted family and never really sought to connect with them. I think he, he had a relationship with his sister, Kathleen, but I never I never met my uh, maternal grandparents on his side. But the irony there, Marty, was that he was raised on a golf course, you know, and that kind of shaped his, his, his path in life, right? Completely. I mean, his father was, was steward uh, and his mother was stewardess in Port Barnett Golf Club. And he wasn't allowed to be a member there, but he he lived in the clubhouse and he'd go out in the evenings with his father and uh, he couldn't make the carries. So he'd have to hit the ball down the path. So, you know, it certainly had a massive impact on him. And then when my grandfather died, he and the mother had to leave the club at the age of about 15. So he left school and went to work to support her. He joined Sutton Golf Club because, you know, staff or staff members couldn't be a member of Port Marnock. So, uh, you know, it's funny the way it works, really. So, but in addition to being a success at golf, your your father was a director at several companies, and he started a company called the House of Car, which is a clothing company, which I read at one time had eight hundred employees. Where, where'd that company go? Uh, the company uh, was very very robust in the in the in the seventies and the eighties, and allowed him as an amateur in those days to go off and play golf. It was Car and McDonald. Uh, he had a partner, Freddie McDonald. And Freddie was kind of running the operations and running the business. And JB was out meeting the buyers. And uh, they were obviously delighted to to play golf with them. So uh, they had a great relationship. And it also afforded him the ability to go to the States and play in Walker Cups when, when nobody else was, was traveling. Uh, but obviously, the imports from Asia and Hong Kong and China started coming in in the rag trade. And that business was slowly wound down. I think it's still operational today, but it's, it's a shadow of its former self. Now, he also sat on several boards. 
Yeah, right. he was on the board of AIB yeah. Bank. He was on the board of uh, Irish Ferries. He was, uh, I guess, one of his other. Uh, 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 he was on the board of Tork Stock Exchange Oil Company as well. A very good friend of his, Tom O'Malley. Wow. Uh, so he was a very successful uh, board member. He, he had very good instincts, fantastic personal skills. Um, you know, and very competitive, obviously. Yeah. Can you compare him? Because I, I've, I've never seen any videos of him actually playing. Can you compare his playing styles to anybody on the tour today that might be familiar? Um, uh, you know, he, he was all hands. He was very, very strong, very big hands, uh, very powerful hitter of the ball, hit a long way. I guess his putting was the most suspect uh, part of his game. If he got it into difficulty, he would have the ability to power through the ball in the deepest of rough or on the, on, on the toughest of lies. So his skill set was hitting it very, very far and very... I suppose he was his other. The other thing he was very known to be is a very fierce competitor, particularly in match play. So, getting back to you, you know, you've you've said you've been quoted as saying, "I've I've got the name, but not the game," with respect to your your uh, golf ability. So, who who taught you to play, and and how often do you play now? You know, I'm kind of I'm kind of self taught. I, I I don't play a lot of competitive golf, so I guess that's why my game hasn't really been honed. I think in order to to play well, you need to play competitively, and it's not something that I've ever done. I play off about I play off eleven uh, at the moment at a Port Marnock Golf Club. You know, I don't have a regular game over here, but I would go, I'd go to the states now to the PGA Show, and then I make my way out to the AT and T. So I might play a, a dozen rounds in three weeks, but week in week out, I mightn't play for three or four weeks, and I might play two or three times in a week, uh, mainly social or client golf. It passed me by a little bit, and when I was a teenager, I kind of rebelled uh, against the game. I went off to boarding school, and then went off to college in the states. So. A lot of the environment around golf that surrounded me was, was kind of avoided me in the peak years. But I, I very much enjoy a social game of golf. And uh, I don't really feel – I mean, I, I do carry this cross of the car name because the expectation when I show up is is, is very, very, you know, it, it's exceptional. And I have to really deflate everybody's expectation. And I've, I've actually had one or two people ask me, am I adopted? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you don't have visions or, or memories of your dad standing over you telling you to, uh, you know, to, to complete your backswing or. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had gone through uh, a lot of, a lot of lessons. I'd be fairly self-taught, but I do remember being out on the practice round with a bunch of guys and maybe Henry Cotton might be there and he would have a new technique for, for hitting the tire, the, the car tire uh, one-handed uh, with your left hand and then hitting the ball afterwards. And I remember all these kind of, these techniques and these cutting edge and John Jacobs staying in the house, but it was never kind of prolonged. I never, I never really, I never really engaged. And I guess in some respects I regret it, but I, I, I can't look back. I can't complain. It's, I've had a good run, you know? Now you went to, you went to college in, in the yeah. States. Was there any pushback from your family? No, that? I think it was more like they pushed me over there. <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> I, first of all, I wasn't very academic. I was a bit of a messer. And, uh, my brother, my brother Roddy was working for IMG at the time in Cleveland, and my brother Jody had done a, 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 a semester over in Denver. So I went over to stay with an aunt the summer before. They kind of set me up. Uh, so I ended up by going by default, and things in Ireland were very dire uh, when I when I went over there in the in in, in 1980. So it all it all fitted together, and it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me. To be honest, was going over there and, and getting that break. Okay. And you started out after you graduated as an investment. Yeah, I, I was a cold caller um, when I was in college and uh, went over to New York and after college and uh, joined Payne Weber. And I was a stockbroker there for five years. It was it was a fantastic experience. Wow. I mean, what, a, what, a, what a training ground for, for everything. And then I came back to Ireland and I spent a year in the stock market here working for Dermot Desmond, who's now Ireland's richest men, the smartest guy I've ever met. And uh, 
I did that for about a year. And then I figured, you know, to be honest with you, it wasn't for me, you know, sitting in an office in front of a screen. So car golf was, was a, a concept that was formed with myself and my brothers late one night in the Sutton Golf Club uh, uh, through in the town. And we set it up at the little roller decks. There was, I don't even think we had an email address in those days. So, you know, it was, it was kind of seat of the pants decision without really a clear direction of where it was going to end up. We just knew that the camp, the family name was, was, was associated with golf and, we we should try to do something in the golf business. Sure. What were some of the initial uh, challenges you had doing that? I mean, were there 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 were operators, uh, other operators? At yeah. The time, I, I, to be right? honest, yeah, you like the you know as I, I said there, kind of it, it very much evolved. Um, you know, there was I first started. Uh, I got a, a license to import imitation pin golf clubs that a friend of my dad had, and we started to sell them. And then it became very clear to me that I was going to go broke very quickly. And then I started to explore the fact that the there was no public golf course in Ireland at that time. And we started looking at the UK model and they basically were privatizing all the local authorities. So I approached the local authorities over here to start developing public golf. Travel actually came in a little bit afterwards. Uh, so so the business plan actually evolved. It kind of evolved over time. The travel business evolved out of the fact that there were so many informal requests for people coming to Ireland calling Roddy, calling John, calling JB, saying, look, we're coming over. Where do you think we should stay? Or can you get us on here? So it was nearly like formalizing something that was already informal in our family for decades. Was there, or, or and, and is there still, uh, what's the right word? You know, the ugly American traveler, obnoxious, uh, coming over and pushing his or her weight around. Does that still exist over there in terms of kind of resistance to American you know tourists? I, I think golf? quite the contrary, Gordon. I think, I think, at the end of the day, you know, the Irish get the Americans. Forty million Irish Americans living uh, uh, over there that are that are kind of descendant from from us somehow. I think the weight is the same. Uh, I think you guys, you know, feel safe over here. So, I think part and parcel of the popularity of Ireland is the mutual respect and and how we get each other. And, and you know, there's certainly in the seventies and eighties you would have you would have seen the, the kind of the stereotype loud American dressed in all these flash colors, you know, but generally speaking, it's, it's, it's a very well heeled bunch of, of golfers that come over here. Now it's a very high end destination. It's become a very high end destination. I'd have to say that out of the thousands of, of, of people we bring in primarily Americans, you could count on one hand, uh, the people that you wouldn't want to play another round with, you know? So there's no question that I, I think that, yeah. uh, I think there's a mutual love affair between the Irish and the Americans, to be honest with you. Yeah. Okay. Is the same true in Scotland, or is it a little bit pricklier over there? Uh, like fifty percent of our business is is organising trips to Scotland. I don't think they have the same sense of humour, or I don't think the the apres golf or the off piece golf is quite the same. I don't think you know the one thing you'd always find. I think any day of the week you can compare any course in Scotland against any course in Ireland. So you know Muirfield against Port Marnock, you know Troon against Port Rush. The old course against Ballybunion, you know, I think we'll match Scotland, you know, uh, head for head. But I think when it comes down to the welcome and the couple of pints afterwards, I think I think the Paddies have them beaten hands, hands down. Have you seen any pushback from Americans on not wanting to play on Trump-owned courses? Yeah, some people would be very specific about that. I think the only the only, the one, the one I've heard, the only Trump course that's actually you know outperforming uh, its its prior uh, results is Dune Bag, which is actually going from strength to strength. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, yes, yes, some, but not, you know, not not as much as some people would think. Okay, or hope. <laughs> yeah. 
So about the time you started the company, you created this World Invitational Father-Son Golf Tournament, um, which has been very successful. And then subsequently, you created the Father-Daughter event. Can can you explain uh, how important those events have been to your brand? And I saw that last year you did one in uh, at uh, Pebble Beach also. Yeah, I mean the father and son is, is probably one of the one of the the great. I mean one of the great uh, achievements that I feel that I have 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 been part of. Um, it started off, you know, with me kind of licking three hundred envelopes in the GPO one of my office, and then going out for a few pints to get rid of the taste begging people to come to this event in Waterville. And this year we have 148 applications for 92 spots. We have 96 teams that play wow. from 13 countries year in, year out. And Dan Quayle and Wayne Gretzky and Bobby Orr and John Snow, the ex-Treasury Secretary, and, you know, a number of, of, of really the business, political uh, and golfing world converging. Tom Fazio plays. And it has been probably the greatest uh, sense of, of satisfaction that I've got. And we call it the fraternity of golf. Um, it has created a an incredible friendship and bond between the people that have played. Um, so it, Rome wasn't built in a day. It took a long time to get it up and running. So subsequently, I have a very good friend of mine who has three daughters, and I have two daughters, and he badgered me to do a father-daughter. So we now have a father and daughter that's going 13 years again in Waterville. Uh, and I, I rotate between my two daughters, uh, but again, it's a magical formula of fathers and daughters, like-minded, you know, playing golf, but also singing songs and having fun and getting dressed up. And, you know, to be honest with you, it's a labor of love. You know, you can't really call it yeah. work. Now, do your daughters play anyway, or do they only play at this event? You know, I guess they don't play as much as I'd like them to. But given the fact that I wasn't a great golfer myself, I didn't really push them to look <laughs> into it. Um, yeah. You know, one of them plays off. Uh, they one of them plays off nineteen. The other one plays off twenty or twenty one. So they they can play. They can hit a ball, but they don't play very much. Are you a grandfather yet? I am not. No, my uh, my eldest is twenty one, and my uh, youngest is uh, eighteen. Okay, you had a few years. Few years ago, please, please God. <laughs> okay, talk to me a little bit about the golf tourism business. Um, what what kinds of changes have you seen over the past thirty years? Is it is it tougher for tour operators to compete now? Or? Yes, I think obviously with the advent of the internet and uh, direct booking and the transparency uh, that the internet provides, really it is a very, very competitive environment. In fact, I have a number of ex-employees who've literally set up travel companies. It's quite easy to do. Um, I think at the end of the day, though, the supply of of availability of tea times at the private courses, uh, if anything, it's contracting. Uh, while the demand is increasing in access uh, with direct flights, primarily from the United States, so it is a it's a very tight space. Um, it is is probably oversupplied in terms of operators, uh, but at the end of the day, you know we 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 try and provide a high level of service with you know a huge amount of local knowledge and know where all the hidden gems are, whether it's a restaurant or a pub or uh, the best drivers, the best coaches. So there's more to it than just uh, you know, competing on price. In fact, we, we, we don't do that. So, uh, but yeah, look, it's a very competitive space. Um, uh, and, you know, we like to create memories and experiences uh, that last a lifetime. And that takes a little bit of extra effort. It's not a matter of, yeah. you know, just booking a tea time or booking a hotel. Do, do you ever envision a day uh, similar to what they have at St. Andrews now, where you have to apply months in advance and have a certain handicap to, to tee it up? Well, you already, you already do have to apply months in advance. I mean, to be honest with you, 
most of the inventory in a lot of the Lynx courses for 2020 is gone already. Uh, and that's not just St. Andrews. Um, like Port Rush should be pretty much sold out for next year. Royal County Down is definitely sold out for next year. Uh, the old Hedekin Sale, you'd find it very difficult to get a tea time. So that's already happened. And that's actually for the whole of 2020, you know. Wow. Do they have the handicap requirements as well? Not, those not, 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 not per se, no. I mean, it's, and, and if it is, it's not strictly enforced. Uh, I mean, that, and again, that's nearly self-qualifying in itself, you know what I mean? I mean, people coming over to play these links golf courses, um, you know, if, if, they don't, if they don't really have, you know, something uh, with less than a two in front of it, I mean, it's just going to be torture. So, you know, I think, I think in many cases you don't really get the very, very high handicappers you know, taking it on unless it's, you know, a corporate event. So talk to me a little bit about companies transition into course ma- uh, ma- maintenance and club management. Um, what, what prompted you to do that? Um, did you, it was that a tough transition to make? You know, I guess, I guess it, it all started. Uh, we, we've, we've always kind of, I do, as I mentioned earlier on, we, 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 we developed a number of public golf courses in the very infancy of the company and we managed them for a number of years. And, when the crash hit here in uh, uh, 2000 and, you know, five, six, seven, the golf industry was in a terrible state. So we ended up working for a lot of banks and receivers uh, going in and trying to figure out uh, how to run the businesses uh, efficiently. And out of that was born a, a maintenance outsourcing solution. Uh, when we now, we now have between, between our management and maintenance company, we've 28 golf course clients that engage our services uh, Literally, there's economies of scale, uh, there's expertise, there's technology that you bring to bear. And it's become very clear, clear to us that a golf club that's struggling doesn't have the resources to have a marketing team or an agronomic plan that's overseen by a very high-level professionals, you know, or, or, to, or to use the software or the buying power. So it really evolved out of the state of the industry. So it's been a, it's been a long journey. We're trying to stay very focused on the three pillars of the business, which is the travel and events. Uh, the maintenance business, and then the the management and marketing. But you know, touch wood, it's all it's all it's all going very well. People like a a professional solution with which is transparent uh, and is based on results. We present the owners of the clubs with a lot of data that they wouldn't otherwise get, and, and they can make the proper decisions rather than guessing. Do you have your own proprietary software, club management, or do you use a no? We work another platform? we work at Chrono Golf, which is a Canadian company to run the the point of sale systems and interface with the uh, uh, T sheets. Uh, we have a, a system called Ground Two Control that operates all the uh, the maintenance operations, so quantifies uh, materials, labor hours, uh, servicing of machines. So we're very, very data driven. Uh, even in the travel business, we use a, a software system called Resco. So, like the technology that drives our business, which is like eighty strong employees, is a huge part of what we do in every aspect. And you know, when you start gathering data over several years the power of that information becomes really 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 important do you have a point of view on on how the uh, brexit may affect the golf industry and in uk and ireland to be honest i don't think it's going to have a major effect uh, i think the uncertainty that has gone obviously now with, with, with boris getting a staggering majority and i think people were just absolutely fed up with the you know endless debate i think now he's going to basically put through the the latest brexit deal Provided there's no border between North and South of Ireland, I think everybody's going to be everybody's sad to see them leave the EU. And in, I think in most people's minds, it doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. But so be it. The, really, the only issue would be crossing borders between the South of Ireland and Northern Ireland, which should be not a, should not be an issue under the current deal. And actually, going in and out of Scotland for the for the US visitors 
you know, it's probably, I don't think it's going to be very difficult for U.S. holidaymakers to go to Scotland either. So I can't imagine it's going to have a major impact. Has there been, other than your father, has there been someone who's been the most influential person in your life in terms of your, both in terms of your personal outlook and in terms of your business? Uh, I'd, say, I'd say from a personal perspective, it's probably my wife because she's uh, she saved me from myself and she's uh, kind of a very good influence. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very safe answer. I'd say, I'd say, I'd say most men would say that. <laughs> you're, you're smart. She's probably still your first wife, right? <laughs> she is, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we're not, we're, we don't trade as frequently over here, I don't think. <laughs> okay. But uh, I think from a business perspective, I think it would have to be you know, one of the Irish iconic businessmen, probably Dermot Desmond, who who really is a, a very smart, uh, forward-looking individual uh, who, you know, hired a lot of smart people. Uh, and he once said to me, you know, the only mistakes you learn from are the ones where there's pain involved. And it's very, very true. Literally, you have to learn, 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 learn by your own mistakes. And if you get away scot-free, sometimes you don't really learn the lesson. It takes a second time. So, you yeah, know, that's, uh, that, that's probably it. That, that's actually my next question is, do you, are there any regrets or failures or missed opportunities that you think about yeah. other than not uh, not not being better at golf? Um, do you know, I think I, I got involved in a, in a project in, in Central Europe uh, in the heyday, which uh, uh, didn't work out very well. It cost me an absolute fortune uh, and, 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 and some of my partners. And uh, luckily, luckily didn't uh, didn't finish me off. But I mean, you know, you've been talking about people starting their own businesses. There's no question that it's a it's a it's a very choppy journey and a very lonely journey when 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 you're confronted with challenges like we did have the nine eleven which you know took the, the the revenues and the travel business down by fifty sixty percent overnight the recession that I mentioned earlier on that hit Ireland particularly hard was also a brutal uh, part of the journey so you'd like to think that uh, you know my job now is you know keeping an eye out for icebergs and uh, you know not 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 exposing yourself to any undue risk but uh, I guess I guess the other thing is is more recently we've we've got out of a lot of businesses that we had been been engaged in, you know, a teaching brand. Uh, we had a couple of restaurants and golf clubs that were losing money. We got out of them. We handed the keys back to a property we had a lease on. So really focusing on the bread and butter and getting away if stuff isn't actually generating or is not core to our journey to get rid of it and then to hire some really really good people. And I think I was a slow learner in many of those categories, but. I'd like to think that the team is there at the moment are very ambitious. I mean, it's, you know, it's a very difficult business to make money in the golf business. You know, we're, we're happy enough. You know, I think, I think, I think you maybe touched upon it earlier on, but you know, to me, it's not all about the money. It's about actually, you know, a really, really good team of people uh, who are coming up to create opportunities for them in a culture where they can actually enjoy going to work. I think the biggest challenge at the moment is, you know, with these millennials coming through, I mean, they think differently. They, they act differently. They expect, you know, a lot more. And actually just coming to terms with that, because in our days, you know, you're going to slap over the back of the head and be told to go back to work. <laughs> that doesn't work anymore. No, you're right. You lost, you recently lost a key member of your staff, um, a long time member. He's director of client services. Right, is that- yeah, Peter Keery, uh, his, his, his wife uh, looked after us when we were kids and Peter dated her. And I was a page boy at their wedding when I was like eight. And then Peter, 30 years ago, came to uh, work with me and he ended up driving, you know, clients. Uh, and then he ended up befriending clients. And, you know, he's great friends with Wayne Huizinga. And, he, you know, he hangs out with Irving Azoff. And he was a legend. And he was probably one of my closest friends, yeah. So that was a bit of a – we celebrated 30 years this year. We had an incredible – the father and son of Pebble Beach and the Open Championship in Port Rush. And 
then on to her events at the Donald Ross up in Royal Dornock. And then 10 days after we got back from the Donald Ross, Peter had a massive heart attack. So that was like a, uh, that was like a shot out of the blues. So still coming to terms with that, but I guess that's life. He had a very good innings and, uh, you know, really, really miss him. And, and the contribution that he made, you know, is absolutely intangible. You know, it's, it's just priceless. They never made a lot, yeah. a lot of I'm friends. Sorry about so on that, on that subject, I mean, is there, is there something you'd like to say to your father if he were still around today? Uh, I'd say, Dad, uh, thanks for uh, thanks for giving us the uh, legacy. He he made so many friends. One of the things I would say about my dad was that they always said about him, and he great friends with Jack and Arnie. One of my fondest memories is actually getting to know Arnold Palmer late in life through his friendship with JB. More recently, I, I got to know my brother Roddy, spent a bit of time with him, and he used to say about my dad, he said, you couldn't tell when he walked off the golf course, given his demeanor, whether he'd won or lost. And I think that really, really summed it up. You know, he was a fierce competitor, uh, but if he was beaten fair and square, that was it. So, but I, I, I'd like to thank him for, 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 for everything that he's, you know, my education and, and uh, for giving us the car legacy for me to build on. Here's my last question. Do you have any advice for someone who's thinking about either starting a career or a new business in the golf industry? Uh, yeah, well, if you think you're going to end up playing a lot more golf, I'd have second thoughts about it. <laughs> we, we quite a few people enjoyed our company because they love golf. and uh, It's a business at the end of the day. I think it's a tough business to make money in. Uh, and, and the speed of change um, with the likes of Top Golf and, and all these other facets. But, uh, yeah, tread carefully um, and uh, go in with your eyes open, you know, and, and have realistic expectations. Um, and don't expect to, uh, you know, retire uh, very very rich <laughs> okay marty this has been great and i really appreciate your your time and your insights and i'm sure the listeners will enjoy it do you want to add anything if, is there anything i haven't asked you that you want to comment great. On? i really 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 appreciate the opportunity to uh to have this conversation and uh, it's always a pleasure and uh yep. hopefully we'll see you on the road over there very soon well are you going to be at the pga golf show I will indeed yeah we'll be there for the week um i'm going to i'm going to look you up then so yeah, I can shake your hand. Yeah, definitely. Please do. Love to, love to grab a coffee or something or even a okay, pint. that's great. Okay, that'd be great. Thanks again, Marty. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for Take me. care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyad.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.